So the exercise paradox, put simply, is that the, the more you exercise, the, the fitter you are, the less likely you are to have a heart problem. But no matter how fit you are, it's during exercise that you're likely to have your problem if one is destined to happen. What's up, folks? Welcome back to King of the Ride podcast. This is a fascinating one that I've been wanting to record for a number of years, and I'm thrilled that we actually got around to doing it. This episode is all about the athlete's heart. In short, an athlete's cardiovascular system is different from a, quote, normal person's cardiovascular system. Why do we hear stories of athletes dropping dead at the peak of their physical condition? What happened to Sonny Cabrelli at the finish line of Volta Catalonia this year? What should you be doing to keep your heart healthy, presumably as an active person yourself? Our guest today is not just an expert in the field, but he quite frankly invented it. Dr. Aaron Bagish is our guest today. His specialty is sports cardiology, which is a well-respected and well-established field at this point. Fascinatingly, however, prior to 2008 when he created the Cardiovascular Performance Program at Boston's Mass General Hospital, sports cardiology here in the United States really didn't exist. Dr. Bagish put it on the map. He created this field that's quickly proven imperative, essential for professional and elite athletes, and anyone who is active as part of their job first responders, Navy SEALs, firefighters, and so forth. Dr. Bagish serves as team cardiologist and physician for numerous athletic organizations, including as medical director for the Boston Marathon, cardiologist, team physician for U.S. soccer, U.S. rowing, Harvard University, Suffolk University, the New England Patriots, the Boston Bruins, and the New England Revolution, among others. After more than a dozen years establishing this program there in Boston, he has recently taken a full-time position as a professor of medicine and chief of sports cardiology at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, which we're also going to chat about today. I wanted to talk to him because this is the preeminent person with whom to speak about our ticker. So whether you ride a bike none, a bit, a ton, this affects you. As you may have caught wind, I recently learned that I have a pulmonary embolism. In short, that is a blood clot that has made its way into my lungs. So while related to the heart and cardio system, this conversation does not stem directly from that event. I'm sure I will do more conversation about PEs in the future, as I'm learning one heck of a lot right now, but these are two separate things. Just thought I would lob that out there right now. So there you have it. I learned a lot from this conversation. I've learned a ton from Dr. Bagish over the years. I know you will too. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Aaron Bagish. Awesome, I'm, I'm very excited for this podcast. Dr. Aaron Bagish, welcome to King of the Ride podcast. Great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this as well. Thank you. Um, so, so I want to start with some very broad strokes uh, to begin. Where where do you suppose that you first have an interest in in medicine, and then uh, cardiology and sports cardiology in particular? Yeah. So my path into medicine was a little bit unconventional. I actually went to school up in Vermont at Middlebury College and trained in geology. And I had all sorts of plans to be out on the West Coast and running at a pretty high level at that time. And one of my um, running partners, super fit kid who was a 220 marathoner, actually was the unfortunate victim of sudden death. And he had an underlying heart problem that he didn't know about. And for me, that was a game changer. It just basically 
um, was a wake up call to do something different in life. And so I pivoted and became a doctor. And from day one, the idea was to figure out how to work with athletes and prevent that stuff from happening. Wow. Wow. Um, so, so did you, did you pivot directly from, uh, were you, were you in undergrad at that point when you started pursuing medicine? Um, I was out of school working as a geologist and, um, also as a ski patroller, which is a pretty good job to have, Uh Uh, but then made a decision to re-engage and finish up some coursework I needed to, to get to medical school and started from there. Okay. And then, uh, I, I think you land in Boston in 2008 and end up starting the cardiovascular performance program, um, where you're looking, you're, you're effectively working exactly what you just said with, with competitive athletes and highly, uh, active people with heart disease. Um, uh, I'm, I'm curious because by my understanding, it's basically a first of its kind nationwide and, and perhaps worldwide at that point. Um, and now it's, it's, it's something that is standardized throughout a lot of medical centers, whole bunch of questions there. Are you, are you naturally entrepreneurial? Um, how do you see something that doesn't yet exist and say, I want to create that? So the so I I don't know if I can claim to be naturally entrepreneurial. Maybe I do have an entrepreneurial stripe to me, but I I I, I think I could be considered innovative. And I know that um, from the very get go, that there was an unfulfilled need. Right there were there were athletes that either had heart problems or had concerns about heart heart problems. And I would hear story after story from my training partners and my friends about going to the doctor and getting brushed off. You know, oh if you can ride a hundred miles, you can't have a problem with your heart. Or if you can climb up a hill, you can't have a problem with your heart. And I just knew that wasn't true. So the um, the idea that this was a need was was one that I felt very strongly about and worked with a couple of my buddies who were actually in business school um, to think about how to develop a business plan. You simply don't learn that as a, as a, as a medical trainee. And when we started talking about um, it was clear to them that it was an unfilled niche. And so we put together a business plan. And I used that here within Mass General to, um, to entice them to start this program. And they were very skeptical. I was told by many people that this wouldn't fly. Uh, I was given 12 months to make it break even and um, was close to not having that happen because it's hard in the beginning to make something work. But it, it unfolded pretty quickly. And a lot of it was just word of mouth, talking to my friends and people in the local community and ultimately blowing this up and getting other doctors around the country to see the model. And I'm really excited to have been a part of that. It's, it is incredible. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to dive into the exact same question. Why do you suppose it has taken so long to recognize that a, an athletic heart is not the same as call it a normal heart? I think there's, there's a couple of, couple of issues. First is that there's a common misconception that the fittest of the fit um, can't get sick. Right. We see fit level athletes and I'm talking, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know this better than I, that many of the people you and I know who've been able to compete and perform at the highest levels of sport also sometimes end up with problems, but that's not the general public typically appreciates. And it's certainly not something that the medical community has appreciated up until recently. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a misunderstanding about the need. And the, the, the second issue is that medical schools, hospitals just haven't seen this model before and didn't see it as something that would be a kind of a core value added to the service line they provide. And that was really the battle that I had to fight early on was to really educate people about this need and what we could do to make the community safer and make athletes able to do what they want to do. Hmm. Well, yes, as, as, as you just alluded to, I, I think my example of why I ended up uh, seeing you is, is probably presumably something common. I had a 
screening, um, which was effectively mandated by the UCI, the uh, cycling governing body. And it was a traditional screening. I saw a traditional cardiologist. He raised a bunch of red flags, terrified the daylights out of me. I ended up seeing you. Again, broad strokes, is that common or, or why do people end up going to CPP? Yeah, one of the most common reasons people come to us is they've gotten into the care of a doctor somewhere else. And this is no fault of the doctor because there was no sense of the need to educate about this. A doctor looks at a test, whether it's a cardiogram or an x-ray or a CAT scan or an ultrasound, sees something they're not familiar with and assumes it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And until you know what's normal for an athlete, and this is where our research work over the last two decades is focused, until you understand what's normal for an athlete, you can't differentiate health from disease. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we do is clear up those questionable problems. And as as Ted, as your experience um, shows, a lot of that comes from well-intended screening. Sure. Well, yeah, the intention is in the, is in the right place. Uh, so, so, you know, diving into the specifics that I think will relate to my audience, because I have to assume most of the folks listening are, are endurance athletes or uh, cyclists outside of my mother. Um, what, what are some of the, the common ailments and irregularities that you see that are common among endurance athletes? Yeah, so the first place to start is by making a somewhat arbitrary, but I think useful age differentiation. We, we really divide athletic problems into those people below the age of 35 and those people above the age of 35. And the younger segment, collegiate, uh, professional, Olympic caliber athletes, when heart problems arise, they're usually either congenital, meaning things they were born with, or genetic, meaning things that their genes program them to develop at an early age. And then that's the, the most common reason for the kind of the high media visibility, sudden death things and young competitive athletes, both endurance as well as team sports. Mm-hmm. The other side of the equation are the older athletes, master's athletes. And this is an important part of what we do. And there it's not the congenital or genetic things. It's the regular acquired heart problems, two most commonly coronary artery disease and atrial fibrillation or arrhythmia, which happen at older ages and in some cases actually may be more enriched in athletic people. So it's, it's young is genetic and congenital, old is coronary and arrhythmia. Makes perfect sense. Um, and recognizing this is going to maybe open an enormous uh, Pandora's box. I'm curious what you see from going along this, this line between a totally sedentary person versus call it an active person versus uh, maybe a explosive athlete, like you professional baseball, football, versus professional cycling? Um, so help me understand the question a little better. What, what, in terms of that spectrum, what were you asking? What, as a cardiologist, what, do you, what, what sort of literal differences do you see in the heart um, among that range of person, recognizing that is a very large range and, and a whole lot of generalizations? No, I got you. So yeah, that's a great question. So the heart is, uh, is like any muscle that responds to stress. And the two fundamental stresses the heart can see are pressure and volume. And if you think about physical activities, they're all some, some mix of pressure and volume. And it's best to consider the bookends. So if you think about powerlifting, think about someone that's in the gym trying to do a one rep max squat or bench press, that's all power. Blood pressure goes through the roof, sometimes three, 400 millimeters of mercury high, oh. and the heart feels lots of pressure. And when the heart feels pressure, it thickens. 
contrast that to an endurance athlete, say a, say a cyclist or, or a long distance runner who's moving lots of blood through the heart for many hours at a time at relatively low pressures, that's a volume challenge. And so when the heart feels volume, instead of thickening, it dilates. And so the true low pressure volume athlete, we see dilation without thickening. The true strength athlete, we see thickening without dilation. But there's a whole spectrum in between. And a great example would be a rower who does a lot of volume and a lot of pressure. And there you get the combination of thickening and dilation. The key, though, and this is where we spend most of our time educating other doctors, is that the only way to know if what you're seeing is normal is to go back to the person and start with understanding what type of physical activity they do. If I see a thick heart and a weightlifter, I'm typically not that concerned. If I see a dilated heart and a cyclist, I'm going to vice versa. Dilation in a strength athlete or thickening an endurance athlete, that's a red flag. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Rudimentary question. Are you do you see do you see non-athletes or or do you see a common um, folks off the street or or is your practice so specialized that you're looking exclusively at athletes? Well, the, um, the first answer to that question is when we started all this, we came up with a definition of who would be a good fit for our program. And it was really just a, a high premium on physical activity. Mm-hmm. So that would obviously encompass elite level competitors, but also recreational master's athletes or people that need physical activity for their job. Mm-hmm. So Navy SEALs, um, special forces, emergency medical technicians, that sort of stuff. people that need to be active for their job. Anyone that values or needs activity is a good fit for what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally have been, have had the luxury of being able to gravitate more to, toward the elite athlete population because of just word of mouth. But our program sees the gamut. We have great doctors that do this work uh, and serve anyone that needs us. That's awesome. Um, does your practice extend to, I mean, you are in the field of cardiology. Does it extend to pulmonology and hematology directly or, or, I mean, I recognize that you're currently sitting at MGH right now. I mean, this great medical institution, uh, is it all really well connected or is it pretty siloed? Yeah. So there's, um, there's two, again, two answers to that one. One is that in order to be a pulmonologist or a hematologist or a cardiologist, you come from a basic internal medicine training background. Okay. So by definition, cardiologists have a, some insight into all of those other specialties. But the way we've also did it is to have consultants that we work with closely that also understand and want to care for athletes. So if I have an athlete I know has a bona fide lung problem and we've confirmed that it's not a heart issue, I have a list of people that I can work with and send them to who share similar like-minded approaches. Some are more comprehensive than others, but that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I think of athletes, there's there's often a commonality of, of hard charging and pushing through a lot of uh, niggles and aches and pains and, and problems. When when should a when should an athlete when should a person first get checked out um, for just to begin a general screening? Um, yeah. Yes, it's a great question. So screening is a controversial topic. I want to be the first to throw that out there. Most of the screening that's done in young athletes, as, as was in your case, is screening that's mandated by some organization, whether it's the NCAA or uh, the high school federation or an NGB or something like that. And so that's where a lot of the young person screening starts. Mm-hmm. Um, in older athletes, take your typical 55-year-old cyclist, um, there's really no reason to screen unless your body starts a problem or you know you have some risk factor that would put you at a higher likelihood of having a problem. So mm-hmm. high blood pressure, high cholesterol, a bad family history of something happening at an early age, those would be reasons why a master's athlete should, should stop and think about getting some, we wouldn't even call that screening, we would just call that kind of baseline risk assessment. And 
this is probably skipping too many steps from that last question. At what point is, is a sensation something that a, that a person would notice annoying versus at what point is it fatal um, outside of that moment that it is actually fatal? So for the most part, when we're talking about these sensations that occur during exercise, again, and, and folks above the age of 35, we're talking about coronary disease. And so that's, that's you know, the medical term for, for narrowing or blockages of the coronary arteries. And that very typically produces effort-dependent symptoms. And what I mean by that is that the harder you push yourself, the more severe the sensation gets. And that sensation can be chest pain, it can be jaw pain, it can be tingling in the arm. And the hallmark there is that if you think about it from the perspective of being a cyclist, if you know you're, if you know you're wattage spectrum and you can sit at 200 watts and have no 50 and you get a pain in your chest 300 it becomes more profound like that's a good tip off that it's probably not dehydration it's probably not poor nutrition it's probably not not good sleep it's something legit mm -hmm. and if that type of thing happens repetitively over the course of several weeks or a month that's the time to stop and really get someone to look at it mm -hmm. um and in, in sort of therein enters uh what i've heard you talk about the exercise paradox um Please open that one up to, to our audience. <laughs> yeah, it's a great. So the exercise paradox, put simply, is that the, the more you exercise, the, the fitter you are, the less likely you are to have a heart problem. But no matter how fit you are, it's during exercise that you're likely to have your problem if one is destined to happen. So another way of saying that is that the fitter you are, the more you exercise, again, the safer you're likely to be. But if you are destined to have a heart attack or a blockage in an artery or an arrhythmia, it's almost certainly going to be during or immediately after, after an exercise bout that it happens. Whereupon what? You hope that you have experienced symptoms beforehand and, and been screened and have an idea of what you're, what's happening? Or, I mean, how often does it just come on so suddenly you're up a creek? In very rare cases, things come up suddenly for the very first time and cause big problems. And, and there are good, um, very public examples of, of people I know, some of whom I've cared for, who have had very frightening episodes and have had no warning. Mm -hmm. But those are the exception, not the norm. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people, even those that have had bad things like cardiac arrest or bad heart attacks, will look back and say, shoot, knew something was going on and I chalked it up to X, Y, and Z, and lo and behold, it was my heart. And so the, the take-home message for, for our listeners and our friends in the community is that if your body is giving you a sign that something's not right, um, it's really important to pay attention to it. Worst case scenario, you miss a couple of days of training because you're going to see a doctor. Best case scenario is something that could save your life is picked up. Yeah, yeah. I imagine I imagine every sport has has some some hallmark examples of of where somebody has passed away from a heart issue. Um, I think in cycling, we of recent note, we have Nicholas Portal and Sonny Cabrelli. Um, thankfully, Sonny is still with us because he 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 had a cardiac arrest at the finish line of a bike race. Nico knew that he had uh, a cardiac arrhythmia during his career. And so fast forward, I don't know um, the circumstances in which he, he passed away. Sonny, um, I don't know his past. I'm curious, at what point do you see symptoms? Do you see things where you tell an athlete that they no longer are, are have permission to exercise? Like the risk of exercise is, is going to be fatal? Yeah, and I, that's one of the hardest parts of the job, but one of the most important, sure. right? I mean, there, 
there, there are many situations in which, in which risk is low or intermediate or uncertain, and we have a discussion and really encourage the athlete to make the decision around competing their own mm-hmm. and support that. If people understand they have risk and choose to accept that risk, I don't think it's a doctor's job to talk them off the ledge. Mm-hmm. But in situations where the risk is quite severe, um, it, I think it is the doctor's job to be honest and direct coming from competition. And, and there are plenty of examples of times I've, I've chosen to do that mm-hmm. uh, and had athletes, some receive it well, some don't receive it well, some are thankful, some are pissed off. And those are just normal emotions, but I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I gave someone the green light mm-hmm. and went to sleep at night knowing that was the wrong decision. hundred percent. Yep. Um, and I, and I've heard you talk about, uh, volume and intensity as it relates to, to athletes and especially athletes later on. Um, I mean, obviously the, the older you get in age, more frequently you need to tone it down, have rest days, have recovery. Um, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I thought I heard you say, by and large, you're, you're largely allowed to go out and do zone two endurance, sort of to your heart's content. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, for the most part, volume is our friend, not our enemy. And intensity, although it's, it's an absolute necessary to be in peak performance shape, mm-hmm. um, it's, pro- it's probably not necessary for optimal health. So um, we talk about the volume intensity cross product all the time. And if yeah. people ever, when people ask me, what's the safer of the two, you know, it's, it's always volume. That being said, again, in order to be at your, the top of your game <laughs> and actually to delay the aging process, there is some value to intensity. Mm-hmm. It just has to be done thoughtfully. And, and again, as you alluded to, as we get older and I'm feeling this now at age 47, rest and recovery becomes more important than ever. It's kind of a bummer when you have to rest more than you want to, but it's the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, what do you see? What do you think when you, when you see the sort of burgeoning sports of ultras, ultra running, ultra riding, bike pack racing over the course of, of multiple days, multiple weeks? Um, I mean, that's got to be interesting because at some point you're, you're exerting yourself for an extraordinary number of hours or days, but you can only push so hard. So you're pres- uh, presumably your intensity is going to be pretty low. Yeah, I think that the the, the, the true ultra distance events and across all the different endurance disciplines are um, are picking up. They're exciting. People like them. Not everyone, but those that do, do. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and I have no problem with them. I think they're the strategy and the concern is less around heart issues and more around proper hydration, nutrition, figuring out how and when to sleep. But I don't think that they're necessarily bad for health. Do I think you need to do those things to be ultimately healthy? No. Right. If your psychology and your competitive nature is such that you want to go out and do multi-day events, um, go forth and prosper, but do it with a good education and know how to do it right. Right. Um, and, and how do you square the, I don't know what the current recommendations are. I imagine it's something like move your body, get up, go for a walk 30 minutes a day, a couple of times a week. How does that square with, with exercising more is better or, or, or is that just not the case that more is not better? Well, so it's, it's a great question. This is one that we have wrestled with for a long time and continue to kind of think about the bottom line is going from doing nothing, literally being a sedentary individual to doing up to about 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week mm-hmm. confers a tremendous mor- morbidity and mortality benefit, meaning you live better and you live longer mm-hmm. above 150 minutes a week, which for most athletes is a pretty, it's a pretty low level of training. That's a, a day for many people. Uh, if not a half a day for many people, mm-hmm. um, it's not that things get worse. It's just that the incremental benefit becomes less. Right. So it, the, basically the curve starts to flatten out and that's true no matter what outcome we look at, whether it's 
pressure or trying to get your cholesterol better or trying to get your weight down, at some point there are just diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that the curve starts to move in the opposite direction and it gets worse for you. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's this misconception that going from being, you know, a a couple hour a week athlete to a 10 to 20 hour a week athlete makes you healthier. That's just not the case. Sure. Yeah. And you probably give up a lot of other things, family, life, work (laughs) by making that, that transition. It's funny. I give whenever I give a talk about the optimal exercise dose, I show a bell shaped curve, and I say if you're too far on one side, the, the real thing that suffers is marital success, right? Yeah. Right? If you're out for thirty hours a week and your spouse never sees you and they're at home with the kids, um, they're not going to love your biking too much. Uh huh. Accurate. Um, so we're. I'd be a fool to say we're we're out of COVID, um, and now is actually must be an interesting time because we can look back and see what has happened, um, um, how a heart has reacted, how the how the pulmonary system has reacted to uh, to COVID. Sir, uh, anecdotally, I feel like I'm talking to more and more friends who are having it more recently. Here we are in uh, what July 2022. What? What are the screening protocols or, or recommended protocols for an athlete to get back to athletics that, that you're recommending? Um, and what are sort of signs or, or irregularities they should be looking for? Yeah, this whole COVID last two and a half years has been crazy. Do you mind if I riff on this a little bit? Because it's By really all means, go. <laughs> so, like, look, when the pandemic started back in late February, early March of, of 2020, mm-hmm. um, sports as we know it in the U.S., everything shut down in a five-day period of time mm-hmm. between the first diagnosis of COVID in a, in a Utah basketball player to the eventual canceling of every organized sport we knew. And in the beginning, like as a sports cardiologist, and this is happening, I'm saying, what the heck am I going to do? Like, there, <laughs> there goes my livelihood. Mm-hmm. And so what did I do? I rolled up my sleeves and got into the hospital and did regular critical care because that's what we were all asked to do. And that was fine. But what was what was clear pretty pretty early on by April or May of that year is that sports were coming back. And the big concern was whether COVID was going to cause myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle. And we were all really concerned about this because we were seeing myocarditis in older hospitalized patients. And we knew before COVID that myocarditis was a reason why young athletes or an end older athletes could get into trouble and exercise. Mm-hmm. So over the course, literally of the next 18 months, there were a whole series of recommendations around screening, which in the beginning were, were pretty aggressive, including lots of different testing, even if you had asymptomatic COVID. And what we learned through studying the results of all this is that COVID is no fun, but for the most part, if you're a fit, healthy person, the likelihood of it causing truly sinister heart problems is really, really low. Mm -hmm. So the current recommendation, if an athlete gets COVID, if they just have usual COVID, which is the, the fever, the malaise, the sore throat, then wait it out, let your illness clear, and then go back to your training. And if you feel fine, don't worry about it. COVID's over and done. Mm-hmm. If on the other hand, you have as part of your COVID illness, heart symptoms, so chest pain, arrhythmia, that indicates that you're in that very small minority of people that probably do have heart inflammation and or if those things start happening when you get back into your training cycle. And at that point, it's not screening, it's diagnosis of what we assume to be a problem. And that's get into your doctor and get a cardiogram, get an ultrasound done and probably some blood testing. And we're, we're still doing a lot of that. Mm-hmm. This, the, 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 so more recent variants, Omicron, and now the B4 and the B5 have not been causing a lot of myocarditis. Certainly a lot of athletes have been getting sick with it, but we don't see a lot of heart trouble. But when we do, it's it's not something you want to mess around with. And in, it sounds like in those cases, it's it's something that the person, the athlete, the individual recognizes. Something is little not is not right here um, as it relates to my heart. Is that right? Yeah, I think the the 
upfront fears that there was going to be silent myocarditis that people wouldn't feel until they literally dropped dead from it. Yeah. And, you know, we were fortunate enough to be able to the entire um, Division One NCAA pool of schools to study all their athletes coming back in late, late 2020 mm-hmm. and captured more than 3,000 cases of COVID across all different sporting disciplines. And we didn't see one single sudden death case attributable to COVID. So that, that was great. And a lot of those were sick people. A lot of those were asymptomatic people. So it spanned the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So it was a really good news story in that, in that respect. So to a degree, I almost feel like common sense prevails here. If coming out of COVID, if you, if you don't feel well, seek help. If, if you feel well, just use common sense to come back at a, at a moderate rate. I think that's right. And I think we also kind of, as a, as a community, certainly as a medical community, we lost a little bit of common sense early on in this pandemic because we were all so scared. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that the science that has now been done um, and a lot of it really important, helpful science has got us back to a common sense way of operating, but it's taken some time to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, have you, this is going completely different direction. Have you ever worked with athletes who have admitted doping and well, sorry, that's a yes, no question. Go with that. Um, yeah, so worked with them and studied them. We had a, a NIH um, grant, so money from the government here for a number of years to study um, anabolic steroid users. And these were men in, in the local community who had, had used steroids uh, largely for either weightlifting or body image or fight club purposes. Yep. And many of these guys agreed to come be part of our study. And so we learned all sorts of kind of sciencey things about how the heart responses to high dose steroids, most of which are not very good. But in the course of our regular clinical practice, I mean, one of the most all athletes should know is if they go to their doctor and their doctor's doing their job, whatever's done in the exam room is confidential. And sure. it's not a time to hide. It's a time to share because indeed a lot of the things that, that, that drugs do, um, can be underappreciated or under-recognized unless that history is taken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the most important things we do, we, we teach our cardiology fellows coming out of here, our new sports cardiologist, is how to take a performance-enhancing substance history. And that's not something you learn in medical school, but how to talk to an athlete about what they maybe have done during their career or maybe actively doing during their career that could be a good. So, yeah, all the time. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, that... Uh, it's a it's sort of a clinical question, and then I, <laughs> it must be a very interesting <laughs> philosophical uh, fishing of the results. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we could talk about this one all day. I, I I don't think there's any perfect answer to what to do about substance abuse in the in the athletic um, world. Mm-hmm. I will say though that the, the the science is quite clear that particularly when we're talking about red cell boosting agents steroids that there are downstream health consequences that that people should be aware of mm-hmm. the, the, the tough thing is that there's also good science to show that these things these things work mm-hmm. right if you take epo or do auto transfusions you will have higher aerobic capacity you will be faster mm-hmm. right I'm not, again i'm talking to someone that knows the world of cycling better than anyone and you you have i'm sure friends and colleagues that you know that have competed at levels that have gotten benefit from this stuff. So it works. Sure. But I think what doesn't happen in the discussion around athletes making the decision to choose to do this stuff is how it could hurt them. And, and that's part of, I think, for me, if at the end of the day, we can educate people about how it helps, but also how it might hurt, then they have fully informed consent and they can make their, their choices as to what to do. It's the fact that most of the time that discussion about how it can hurt is left out of the, out of the discussion that really bothers me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a conversation that needs to happen. Uh, 
yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting piece because especially now, as I feel like in cycling, it's more and more cleaned up. It's taking place in darker and darker rooms and behind more and more doors. And you're, I'm hypothesizing here; it's no longer you know instituted by the team, so it's just uh, it's got to be a full of heart wrenching decisions. Um, yeah, and there's always so in these dark room, dark door situations. There's always someone with some medical expertise or some medical savvy that's providing or making accessible these agents. Yep. And and to me, the fact that these people are essentially not following through on their medical oath to inform people what they're doing, that's where the, that's where the catastrophe is. Yep. A cyclist who was tour bound and said, "I have this agent I can give you, and it might get you into the top ten of the Tour de France, but it might also leave you at age fifty with a sick heart." Um, choose which of choose what direction you want to go. I'm actually okay with that informed person being able to choose what they want to do. Mm-hmm. It's the alternative that bothers me, which is this is going to help you. This is going to give you a chance of winning. End of story. There's no downside to it. Yep. Yeah, that's a it's a really interesting cross section of athletics and philosophy. I guess philosophy. I mean, it, it reminds me of NFL players being told, "Hey, you're probably going to have CTE, and will you do you want to continue your career?" Because it, it seems almost an inevitability for most football players that they're going to have some some form of it. Uh, and that's certainly a downstream consequence. Um, okay, a little bit more uplifting. What are what are what are overall lifestyle advice that that you you recommend to you know folks who ask, who, to family members, to to <laughs> folks on the street? So um, let's talk general, and then maybe a little bit more specific around athletics and life come together. Mm-hmm. Um, the general first piece of advice is just simply know your risk profile and and address it. Right. So once you start to get into your second or third decade in life, if you don't know stuff about your family, if you don't know how long grandma and grandpa lived, if you don't know why they died, it's time to find out because genetic pedigrees really inform you where your risk lies. Hmm. Uh, The second thing is at some point, and again, this should start as early as the third decade in life, get in and see a doctor and just get some baseline stuff done. Get your blood pressure checked, get your cholesterol checked, get your blood sugar checked to make sure you're not harboring something you don't feel, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. You don't feel them. And if you don't go to the doctor, they're not going to go detect. They're going to go undetected. Mm-hmm. So just get stuff checked. So that's general advice for every single person I meet that asks me, what should I do to stay healthy? Um, when it's when we start talking more about athletes, competitive athletes that ask, how can I continue into my old age to, to compete and to feel good and to perform well? Um, there's some concrete steps that I think are, are worth thinking about. The first, and this is you know, we talked about this a little earlier, there's, there's, and this is no secret, you've got to learn how to slow it down and recover, right? Probably the um, useful advice that I've been able to give, and this is at people at the, really at the height of their career, is to, to keep the intensity down to a minimum of one to two days a week. Hmm. Uh, and that's a hard pill for a lot of athletes to swallow who are pushed really hard by coaches. But it turns out that backing off on the intensity and increasing the volume, at least for cyclists, swimmers, triathletes, runners, has almost uniformly translated into better performances and probably is healthier over time. Um, second thing, and we have talked about this as well, is, is appreciate warning signs, right? As an athlete, you know what you can and can't do. You know what your normal fluctuations are like. You know what it feels like to be fit. You know what it feels like to be unfit. You know what it feels like to be well-rested, well-hydrated. And so you can appreciate when there are deviations from there. But when something doesn't feel right and you can't explain it, 
Mm-hmm. That's the time to stop and get some help from someone because, or at least get some advice from someone because, again, it's the deviations from the norm that indicate the problems. Again, makes perfect sense. Uh, how well, you are an athletic person, you are a fit person, you are a busy person, father, husband. How well do you follow your own advice? To the best of my ability, but I am yeah. I, I all those things that you mentioned, but I'm also another thing, and that is I'm not perfect by any stretch. <laughs> and so there are definitely times when I violate every rule that I've tried to share with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times when, for many reasons, I'll do much more intensity than I know is probably right for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and times that I'll, I don't not listen to warning signs. And I've had some times in my life where I've had some, some warning signs around things that I have listened to, and it's always paid off in the right direction. But I, I try to practice what I preach. Yeah. Um, yeah, wouldn't be if that weren't the case. Excellent. Um, now, now I typically wrap up with three questions, which we're sort of going to skirt around. Beginning with, what is your favorite place to ride a bike? You are an athlete, you're a runner, you're a cyclist. I want to segue it to, I, I know you're going to Switzerland here shortly, where everywhere you look is seemingly nothing shy of spectacular. Tell me uh, quickly about the, the, the move you have coming up and the position you've, that you've accepted. Yeah, so the program we talked about earlier in the podcast, the the cardiovascular performance program here at MGH has reached the point now where that I train the people that I work with for years will be able to carry on the legacy and do that work well. And so I, it just occurred to me that time for a change. And I was fortunate enough to have spent some time in Switzerland doing a sabbatical, made some great connections there and was offered a position at the University of Lausanne, um, where I'll go and <clears throat> do a lot of teaching, some research and a little bit of sports cardiology work with the Swiss uh, national teams, um, but just a change for me. So a new, new chapter. And I would be lying if I didn't say that the Alps weren't the part of the big draw. <laughs> I mean, I've never lived anywhere as a, as a mountain biker and a trail runner that was as amazing. Although pretty darn close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Uh, well, then the, the penultimate question being, or at this point now ultimate, what is the number one place you want to go for a run, go for a bike ride that you have never been? Oh, that I've never been. Gosh, that's a great question. So um, I've never been to Alaska, which is a funny thing. I've been to all over the world, but never been to Alaska. And I would absolutely love to go, I'd love to ride my bike across the entire state if I have the time and bandwidth to do it. Yeah. Um, I've also not spent a lot of time in South America. And one of my dreams is to go back country in Chile and Argentina. I'd love to tour there for a couple of months. Uh, so those are bucket list things for me. But again, going back to Vermont, I will tell you, and I think you, you know this better than I, as a, as a cyclist and as a trail runner, what's happened in the state over the last 10 years has been nothing short of amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched that state transform from a place where it was hard to find good riding trails to a place where there's an embarrassment of riches and an awesome community surrounding it. Mm-hmm. So it's been so fun to watch that evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got out, uh, I was been riding every day recently, but checked out the new Bellow Trail stuff up, up off of uh, Rochester, the new Tunnel Ridge stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's insane that there are miles of flow trails through the woods now that never existed before. Nice. Uh, I'm glad you point that out. That's an area that I've been wanting to go as well. Um, haven't been there, but it's because I literally have amazing trails a mile away from my house. So. Well, this is the riches. Problem. Yeah, I mean, I, li- I live in Woodstock, and we have within 10 minutes of the house three amazing trail systems, so there's no reason to leave. Yeah. But I've committed myself to get out around the state this summer, and it's been from, you know, Kingdom Trails to Sleep Valley. It's just there's so much good stuff. Yeah. So Accurate. Well, uh, reach out anytime you want to go for a bike ride, um, and you're back in this neck of the woods. I am incredibly grateful for your time, for your generosity, and sharing this knowledge. So thank you for... Thank you very much, Aaron. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's been great.